Christmas, Christmas is best, best with, with family and extended family. Christmas is spending time with family and friends and slowing down to enjoy the season. Christmas is helping others. Christmas is celebrating the birth of Jesus and being with family. Christmas is spending time with people you love. And Christmas is praising God for all he's done for me. I love Christmas. Do you love Christmas? Uh, it's a great time. I love it. And before I get in my message, I just wanted to mention one other thing. Um, this is the time of year when, when we encourage people to be extra generous, I guess, towards uh, the ministries of Crossroads. And here's why. Because we, as you know, we're not just about a holy huddle here at Crossroads. Our mission, our heartbeat, our passion is to is transform lives so that those transformed lives can transform our community and the communities that we touch. And we have all kinds of ways of doing that from kids to students to celebrate recovery to uh, adults, senior adults, all kinds of ways. And December is a time when people uh, and many organizations, ministries like Crossroads receive a disproportionate amount of income. And what that allows us to do is to go into the next year, 2019, from a fiscally strong position. And uh, so we just always encourage people at the end of the year to consider giving an end of the year or a year-end gift to Crossroads. We call it Finishing Strong. And there's an envelope with a flyer in it in your program. You could take a look at that. And I hope that you would. I hope that you just take it home, lay it on the kitchen table or wherever it is that you could see it every once in a while. And here's what we always ask. Just go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do about this? And just do what he says. That's what Barbara and I do. We lay it there and we go, God, what is it that you would like us to do about this? How much would you like us to give to the end of the year? And then whatever he says, just do that. So take that home, encourage you to do that. And thank you for uh, generously uh, supporting what it is that God's doing through our church. Well, the young minister was fresh out of seminary. And he was, he was at his first church, his very first service. And he was really kind of nervous. And it was one of those churches where they always opened the service with these words. The pastor would say, the Lord be with you. And the congregation would all respond, and also with you. Right? And this particular day was very nervous. And he got up there. And he realized that the mic didn't work. And it was like dead. And so he said kind of out loud, there's something wrong with this thing. And the congregation responded, and also with you. <laughs> now when we look at the world, the world that God made and the world that God loves, it becomes very apparent pretty quickly there's something wrong with this world. We read about the description of it in Isaiah 9-2. Earlier, the people walking in darkness. That's how the world is described. On those living in the land of deep darkness. And there's a lot of darkness in our world. Little kids aren't supposed to grow up being hungry. Children and women are not supposed to be used as sex toys. People are not supposed to live on the streets. People are supposed to live in homes. There aren't supposed to be a group of people with haves and a group of people that have nots. Races and nations were not intended by God to live in hostility and suspicion and violence. During World War II, a famous British author was asked to write an article for the London Times answering this question, what is wrong with the world? And his article that he wrote was so poignant and so wise and so thorough that I thought, I'm just going to read the entire article right here. So settle back. Dear sir, 
Regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And if we're honest, I think we could all admit, you know, I'm part of what's wrong with the world. I know I am. I'm apathetic, and sometimes I turn a blind eye. Sometimes I'm just selfish with my own stuff, with the things I have. I pass judgment on people who have less than I do, or like somehow I deserve it, and, and they don't. Sometimes there's a little darkness in me. And so I thought, I'm going to introduce a new liturgy to Crossroads here today. So I, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to start with a comment, and then I want you to respond out loud, one voice, and also with you. All right, so let's hear your part. And also with you. All right, so here's my statement. Something is wrong with this world. And also with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Now I want you to turn to the person next to you, right? I'm going to make a statement, and I want you to speak the same words to them with passion and conviction, all right? Here we go. There's something wrong with the world. Some of you enjoyed that way too much. In fact, you're, you haven't, you're just going, you, save your list till later, all right? You can do that on your way home. But that's why we're doing this series, Christmas Is, is because there, we all know there's something wrong with our world, with the world that we live in. And, and, our, and our role, our responsibility as human beings, and if you're a follower of Christ, isn't just to have peace, it's to bring peace into the world. Isn't just to get some hope for myself, but it's to bring hope to other people. And today I want to talk about compassion. And compassion isn't just a feeling. Compassion is something that we do, and that's what we're going to talk about today, because Christmas is compassion. And here's why we can do this. And this is the best news of all. And it's in that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 9-2. The people walking in darkness have seen what? A great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, uh, what? A light has dawned. And the best news from this passage is that light comes in from outside. Darkness cannot create light. And in verse 6, the light is introduced as a person. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there's a title for this person that we sang about and read already. And the title is Emmanuel. In fact, when the angel was telling Joseph that his fiance was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, This is what the angel says. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him, what? Emmanuel. And what does that mean? It means God with us. And most human beings know that there's a lot of darkness in the world. And when the Bible mentions darkness, it refers to two kinds of darkness. One is evil and the other is ignorance. And it first means that the world is filled with evil and untold suffering. I mean, look what was happening At the time when Jesus was born, violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness. Jesus himself was a refugee fleeing from political oppression. Families were ripped apart. Bottomless grief sounds a lot like today. And the other way our world is in the dark is that no one knows how to cure the suffering and the evil and rid the world of evil. Isaiah 8.22 says, Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. 
because they're looking to human resources to fix the world. And today, so often, we look to that. We look to education, to politics, economics, technology, to fix the problems. We often believe that if just a little more intellect, just a little more education, just a little more technology, we can solve the problems of the world. In 1985, there was a massive Live Aid concert with a whole slate of celebrities singing the words, these words, we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. And Bob Dylan sang those, and everybody who saw him thought he's very uncomfortable singing the words to that song. When a newspaper reporter asked him later about it, this is what he said, humankind cannot save itself. And that's part of the Christmas message. The bad news is we can't save ourselves. The good news is we can't save ourselves. God can save us, and he has. And he started it when he started the planet, and and at Christmas time, he entered into our world. And Christmas isn't a holiday season. Christmas is not an event. Christmas is a person, is a person. It's God intervening. It's God erupting into our situation to bring light in from the outside. And why does God feel so compelled to do that? Why does Jesus come as Emmanuel, God, with us? Because God is a compassionate God. And the word compassion actually means to suffer with. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowd, it says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, Jesus saw the blind, the paralyzed, the deaf being brought to him. It says he was moved with compassion. In Matthew 15, he noticed there were thousands who had followed him and they were tired and they were hungry. And it says he had compassion on them. And he was the same with the blind who called after him. It was the same with the leper who fell on his knees and the widow who was burying her only son. It says Jesus was moved with compassion. I read this. Compassion was the wallpaper of Jesus' soul. The wallpaper of his soul. For Jesus' compassion wasn't this something that he felt every once in a while. He was, it was, his compassion was full throttled. He had it all the time. In fact, scol- scripture scholars connect the word compassion to the entrails, to the guts, to the bowels, to the deepest part of a person. There's a story in the book called Tattoos on the Heart where a Catholic priest is talking to this 15-year-old teenager who'd just been released from the county detention center and was asking about his family. And he asked him about his dad and the, the teenager's name is Rigo. And Rigo said, tells him that his dad was a heroin addict and that he didn't, wasn't around much and when he was around, he used to hit him a lot. And the Catholic priest writes this. Rigo begins to cry. And in moments he is wailing and rocking back and forth. And I put my arm around him and he's inconsolable. When he's able to speak and barely so, he says only, he beat me with a pipe. With a pipe. And when Rigo finally composes himself, I ask, and your mom. And he points to a tiny woman standing some distance away. He said, that's her over there. There's no one like her. I've been locked up for more than a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday. 
You know how many buses she takes every Sunday? You know how many buses she takes every Sunday to see my sorry rear end? Then quite unexpectedly, he sobs and the same, with the same ferocity as before. And it takes him some time to reclaim breath and the ability to speak. Then he does gasping through tears. Seven buses. Seven buses. My mom takes seven buses. Imagine. And that's the good news of Christmas. Jesus took seven buses to get to us. And the first bus stop where he got off wasn't Grand Central Station with comfy and warm seats. He got off in a cow barn and they laid him in a feed trough. That's where he got off. And that's the heart of God. And that's the compassion of Jesus. He took seven buses to get to us. And Jesus didn't just feel compassion from where he was in the presence of God. He left that. And he came into our reality. And he was born and grew up and lived. Jesus didn't just feel compassion. Jesus did compassion. He came to be with us. Not because he had to. Wasn't even a second thought. He did it because that's who he was. He wanted to. And we know all that. We know that in our heads. We know that there's lots of challenges and evil and suffering in the world. And we know that Jesus came into our world not just to die and rise from the dead, give us hope about the future. He also came to teach us how to live. He also came to teach us what to do. And in John 17, Jesus says, this is, this is the reality I want for all human beings. He's praying to God, the Father, right before the crucifixion. And he says, I'm coming to you now, God. But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, meaning us, may have what? The full measure of joy. How's our joy going to be full? Well, it's not just when we go to be with him. Jesus says in verse 18 of the same chapter, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. He says, that's where you're going to find a lot of this joy. He says, that's where compassion is going to take root and grow. And until we actually do something, we actually suffer with and get in the life of another person, that's not really compassion. You can feel a lot of compassionate things. That's sympathy. That's empathy. But until we actually suffer with and do something, that's when it becomes compassion. And the way that we move compassion from our heads to our hearts is through our hands. It's through doing something. And every person in this room and watching online has the capacity to be an agent of compassion. Thinker, feeler, lots of resources, few resources. You're kind of out there, an agrarious kind of personality. You're kind of behind the scenes, quiet, young, old. It doesn't matter. You can be used by God to extend compassion of God. And the real question today is what have I done to make sure that doing compassion is a regular part of my day? How am I building the actual doing of my compassion as a way of life? And I want to spend a little time uh, giving you some ideas about how to do compassion. I'm going to give you some recommendations that are increase the odds that we'll actually enter into a doing kind of compassion. So there's two things in your program. There's message notes. Pull those out. There's a card 
a white card that says, do compassion. All right, everybody pull that out, grab a pen. So the first recommendation, back to your message note sheet, is identify your area of passion. In other words, take a step of compassion in some area that you're naturally passionate about. I just want to be very realistic about this. You know, if we get involved in doing some kind of activities or, or working with a group of people that we, we just don't have a connection to, we don't have any sense of, ah, oh, I want to do something about this, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. But here's, so here's what I want to ask you to do. As I go through, I'm going to talk about each of these seven things on this card in just a second. As I go through each of those, I want you to just kind of put on a little heart monitor. And when your heart begins to speed up a little bit, as I talk about one of these things, or if you, you feel a curiosity, or you're, you're, you're just going, oh, what about that? It's kind of like the feeling when this very attractive stranger sits next to you, and you have this kind of interesting curiosity about that person. Um, do that about these things I'm about to go through. Um, what's intriguing? What's interesting? So here we go. All right, you ready to do that? The first area is homelessness. People who lack shelter, who lack food, who face life on the streets. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories about homelessness and compassion in this area told by uh, Philip Yancey. There was this engaged couple in Boston who met with the Hyatt Hotel and planned this massive wedding, expensive reception, the whole deal. And the bill came to $18,000. And so they left a down payment of nine grand, half of it. And about a week later, the groom gets cold feet and he bails on the whole thing, just walks away. And so when the bride goes back to get the refund, she hadn't read the fine print very close and realized that she was told that, no, I'm sorry, but, but this is non-refundable. You can get back 10%, 1,800 bucks, but that's it. And so she thought and she said, well, I really have two choices. I can get 1,800 bucks and forfeit the rest of the down payment, or I can throw a party like Boston has never seen before, only I'm not gonna invite the wedding list. You see, 10 years before, she had been in a homeless shelter, and she'd managed to get her life back on track and get out of there and get a good job, and she'd acquired this little nest egg, and she had a very bright future, and she said, you know what? I remember what it was like to be there. I'm gonna throw a party for them. I'm gonna throw a party for the homeless. And so she changed the menu. She decided, I'm gonna have served chicken in, in honor of, of my former fiance, boneless chicken is what she decided to, <laughs> to do. And she sent invitations. And that warm summer night in Boston at the Hyatt, the guests start arriving, and they're like no other guests the Hyatt has had. <laughs> and the people are all filing in, and, and they begin to get, they sit down, and they begin to get served by a wait staff who are in tuxedos. And they're not dressed in tuxedos. And they begin to eat cordon bleu instead of gnawing cold cheese off of a discarded pizza box. And they begin to toast with champagne, just lifting those flutes of champagne together. And instead of, and there's all kinds of people there. There's vagrants and addicts and, and elderly people and walkers and on aluminum crutches. And there's a party like they've never seen before. And at the end of the evening, they all get chocolate cake and they've danced the night away to a big live band. And as I told that story, 
Are there some of you who would go, oh, I'd love to be a part of throwing a party like that. I'd love to be a part of being involved with people like that. And so if that's you, just go, on your card, you might just put a little check mark. Yeah, that, that stirs me. I'm curious about that. Here's another area, at-risk youth. You know, I think about how many kids that grow up in, in an at-risk environment. You know, I think about our kids. You know, they were in a very stable environment. They always had a place to stay. They always had food. They always had parents who cared about them. We weren't perfect parents. They weren't perfect kids. We spent a lot of time with teachers, extra time, principals. Uh, we spent a very tense morning in court one day with one of our kids. But our kids, by and large, grew up in a pretty stable environment. And I know that's not true for a lot of kids. And maybe it wasn't true in the home where you grew up. I was talking to a principal of a local school just two weeks ago, and she said, there are so many at-risk kids at our school now, so many problems that come from the community. We've had to add extra staff at our school just for this. And then she asked this. She said, Dennis, could Crossroads help with some of our at-risk kids? Could Crossroads do something? And I said, what do you have in mind? She says, we actually have this program called Watchdogs, where men, it's just for men, that could come into our school you know, you get qualified and checked out and all that, but you come into our school and you're just there. You're in the class, you're positive, masculine presence on the playground, in the halls, in the classroom, just so kids get to see an, another aspect of society. And she said, Dennis, could Crossroads do something like that? And right now, if you're going, I would love to do that. I understand what these families are going through. Just put a checkbox by that. At-risk youth. Here's another one. People or children with disabilities. There are a lot of families in our community, and sometimes these families just get hidden because their family situation is so difficult and so different. And And a lot of churches aren't really equipped for this. In fact, a lot of these people cannot go to church because they have to be with their kids all the time. And that's why I'm so thankful for Kay Mason, her team, we, right now, we have volunteers out in the kids' area that are taking care of kids with special needs, all, all levels. Every once in a while, they throw a big party called a respite night where the parents can go and just have an evening off. And they, kids come here, they have a party. And it is amazing. In fact, I asked Kay to write, she wrote me this week, she says, one of my great joys is to see a family come to Crossroads because they've been isolated or even rejected because of their family dynamics. To see a family grow relationships here and their children blossom warms my heart beyond words. And right now, if you're getting a little warm feeling, you go, that, I, that's God saying, check that box, check that box. Here's another one, caring for hurting people. If you could see the list of prayer requests that comes in off those cards in a given week, there is a lot of pain and challenge in our community. And that's just what we know about. There's serious illness, there's job loss, there's addiction, there's death, there's divorce, there's parenting challenges, there's life transitions. And sometimes people just need an encouraging voice in their life. They don't need professional counseling. I mean, some situations they might. But a lot of times they just need a a caring friend to just text and go, how was your day? Prayed for you today. Have coffee once in a while. Some of you know the value of that. You've been in a tough spot or you're in a tough spot and there's a voice, an encouraging voice in your life and you're so grateful that person. And some of you are going, 
I've been there. I had that. Now I could provide that for someone else. A divorced person, we have a divorce care. Someone in grief, we have grief share. For someone who just needs a spiritual friend to walk alongside them for a while, it's called Stephen Ministers. We have all of that. And if that's you, you're going, you know what? I could come alongside a person. You could check that box. Here's another one, tutoring. Some of you love to read. You liked school. You still read a lot. You have all these great books. That's you. And you could come alongside a kid in one of our schools who needs help reading or needs help with math or needs help with whatever it is. You, could, you know what? I could, give, I could give an hour a week to that. I would love to do that. That's tutoring. Here's another one. Construction or housing assistance. Some of you are thinking right now, I don't do talk. You know what? I'm not really good at the talk part. And I raised my kids and I like kids, but I don't want to spend any more time with very many kids. All right? That might be you. Right? That might be you. But you put a power tool or a paintbrush or a spray can of cleaner in your hand and you're a regular Mother Teresa. That's you. How many of you help with Project One at any time? Yeah. That is a day of compassion, and that's terrific, and we're going to keep doing that, and that's wonderful. But we actually do that once a month now. It's called Project 12. First Saturday, half of a day, every month, we take the tools and the spray cans and the paintbrushes, and we just go help people who need it. And if you're going, you know what? I could do that. I could do that. Check that box right there. And here's the last one. Uh, we, I call it Hurts, Habits, and Hangups, and that's Celebrate Recovery Language. We love celery recovery. <laughs> uh, for most people, there's some, Jimmy Scruggs, who's the director, uh, wrote this. For most people, there's something that gets in the way of our relationships. For some, it's drugs or alcohol. For others, it's codependency, food addiction, grief, anger, pride, perfectionism, self-harm, mental illness, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And you might be sitting or watching and you're going, you know, that, that's me. You know, I, I was there. I'm still, I'm still in recovery. Um, but I've got some traction. I've got some mileage. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. And you might be going, you know what? Somebody came alongside of me. Somebody led that 12-step group. Somebody was my sponsor. Somebody was involved, just came alongside of me as a, as a good friend. And if that's you, you're going, you know what? That was me. I'm still, I'm still struggling with some of these things. But I could help people. Check that box right there. Hurts, habits, and hangups. And that's just seven of the things that we're doing around here. And I know that there are a lot more of you that are involved in all kinds of wonderful compassion activities, all of that. I get that. But he, these are seven that we're doing right now. That if you said, Dennis, I want to do something. I'm ready to take the next step. Um, we could, we'll get to you in the next week, in the next two weeks. We'll connect with you. The The a person from one of these ministry teams will contact you and say, here's, here's, some, here's some information. You know, filling out that card doesn't commit you to anything yet. You're just saying, I'm gonna take the next step. I wanna get some information. I wanna find out more. I'm curious. And as I was going through those seven things, your heart might have been a little stirred or curious. I just go, you know what? It's time for me to move out of just feeling compassion and kind of do compassion. So I just check that. And if you're watching online in the YouVersion Bible app under events, this service this weekend, there's also, you can connect with this same form. So you could fill that out where you are watching online as well. Um, and there are baskets 
on these black tables on your way out, uh, fill out that card, drop it in there. That's where you can go. All right, we clear on that? Do compassion. Now, here's the other two, and they're quick. The first one is take a friend. Back to your message notes. This is the second thing you could do. Take a friend. The number one barrier for doing compassion oftentimes is fear. I, I don't know if I could go do that by myself. Well, you don't have to go by yourself. Take a family member. Take a friend. You're in a small group. Do it as a small group. Go, you know what? Let's go, let's go do that thing, whatever it is. Serve at the community kitchen, whatever it is. Let's go do that together. So take a friend. That's number two. And here's number three. Do your part consistently. All right, like I said with project one, that's doing our part. And that's compassion. But you want compassion to grow? Do it consistently. Do it consistently. More than once. And it, maybe it's, it doesn't have to be every day or even every week. Maybe it's once a month or four times a year. And here's why that's important. Here's the rationale. What generates compassion in us, what makes it very effective, is not just the activity, it's the relationship. It's the relationship that forms between a mentor and a student in a tutoring relationship. It's a relationship that forms when we go and help a person in a home and you get to talking about that person and you, you call them back and find out how they're doing. It's the relationship that, that creates the energy in this. It's a cre- that creates the compassion. And you, when that happens, when a relationship forms, we begin to receive. That's when the joy begins to happen is because I'm making a difference. I'm not just giving output and doing stuff and doing stuff and there's nothing coming back to me. When a relationship forms, we begin to receive and it just grows and grows and grows. And honestly, if the relationship doesn't develop, you could be a Mother Teresa type just giving all the time to the people. If there's nothing coming back to you, you're gonna burn out. You're gonna quit. You're gonna drop out. But if you aim at consistent expression, do your part consistently, build it into your schedule, it gives you a shot at developing a relationship, and that's when the joy begins to flow. So don't just try to do your part. Do your part consistently. Our son and daughter, as many of you know, had triplets on August the 2nd, born very young, 26 weeks. They weighed one pound, 12 ounces each. In fact, I have a diaper right here that they wore when they were born, if you want to see how big it is. This is, this is the diaper they wore when they were born. And they've, sidebar, many of you have been praying for them. So thankful. Honestly, it's been miraculous. It's been miraculous. And other people have commented too. And uh, here's a picture of them from a little bit ago. There's Stella, Ivy, and Cora there. And they're doing quite well. In fact, this last week, I got to, I got to have girls night in. Papa, alone, with the three girls. And the rest of the family went out. And so it was Ivy, Stella, Cora, and me. And so I walk into the house, and they're all in their little rock or cribby things, right, lined up against the wall. And it always amazes me to see three. It's like there's three. <laughs> and the rest of the family left, and, and it's me and the girls. And they all start crying at the same time. And so I sit down on the coffee table right in front of them, and it's the pacifier swap thing, right? It's like, okay, that's good. Oh, hey, one more over here. Oh, oh, it fell out. I did discover this. Stella loves pizza and Cora loves popcorn. (laughs) But during the evening, I just took one of them at a time, and I brought them out of the little, and I just held them. Just held them and rocked them and... And I began to sing, I love Christmas songs, and I know a lot of them, so I began to sing all the Christmas songs to the, to the little girls. 
When I got to Cora, there's a picture of me holding Cora. She's looking up into my eyes and I begin to sing, Oh, holy night. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. And as I held her this close, I thought, Jesus was, was like this at one time in his life. He was a baby in Mary's arms. He was this close. He was with us in this way. Jesus took seven buses to be in this spot. And I thought about Cora and I thought how vulnerable and close she was and how close I felt to her. And I thought about that night when, when Jesus came to the world and the word, the word was Savior. The night was the night our of our dear Savior's birth. And I thought, what did Jesus know about being a Savior? He's just a baby, just a baby. And then I sang to Cora that next line, long lay the world in sin and error pining. And I thought about the darkness of sin and error that was in Jesus' world and that's in our world. I thought, Jesus, as a baby, he chose to come here. He decided, I'm going to go to that planet. I'm going to take on a human body. I'm going to become a human being, and I'm going to live their life. I'm going to breathe their air. I'm going to drink their water. I'm going to suffer their sufferings. I'm going to be criticized. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be tossed out of the city like a piece of human trash. I'm going to be crucified like a common human criminal. I'm going to be left for dead and thrown into a tomb. Done. And evil and darkness would win. That's not why he came. He came to conquer the evil and darkness. And he did. And he walked out of that grave and he said, now you can have hope. Now I've brought light into the world and this is the light I've come to give. And that next line of the song is, till he appeared. And what's the next line? Till the soul felt its worth. When I was holding Cora and I thought about Jesus coming into my own life and that he came for me. He took seven buses to get to Dennis so that my soul could feel its worth. And he came and he took seven buses so your soul could feel your worth. Does your soul feel its worth today? That's the compassion of God. He came to be in our suffering with us, not so we'd stay there, but that we could move on into a good life. And that's what compassion is. It's the introducing other, to other people what their soul is worth. And as I held Cora, I said to myself, there is nothing that could happened to Cora, if she was suffering or she was hurting, I would move heaven and earth to get to her. And God did. He moved heaven and, and came to earth so your soul could feel its worth. And that's the message of Christmas. And that's why he came. Not only so our soul can feel its worth, but so that every human being in this world, in our community, soul could feel its worth. And sometimes there's so much in the way that they can't. And God's saying, that's your part. That's my part. That's doing compassion. Are we ready to do compassion this Christmas season? 
Are we ready to leave our comfortable little places and move into the suffering places of other people? Are we ready to take a couple of buses to help other people? Are we ready? Are we ready not just to feel compassion, but to do compassion? Because Jesus said, let your light so shine into the darkness of the world so that people will see your what? See your good works. See, they can't see our sentiment. They can't see our feelings. They can't see our sympathy. But you know what they can see? They can see our compassion. Ready? You know, let's do some compassion this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We are so grateful that you came. You came to be with us. You left Whatever your amazing existence together was and you came and you suffered and you lived and you died and you rose again. And God, I pray that we would be not just people who feel compassion, we would be people who do compassion. And if you're listening to me right now and you've never, you've never experienced that witness of Jesus, he's been kind of arm's length. Maybe you just pray this prayer right now. God, Jesus, I want you to be with me. I want to invite you into my life. I want to invite you into my future. I don't want to live another day without you with me. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.